This sermon, The Wisdom and Power of God, was preached by Lynn Baird on Sunday, March 19, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. Oh, it is always a joy to be back here. Uh, it's always uh, a joy to have the privilege of sharing God's Word, and that's the most important thing that's going to happen today. Thanks, Brett, for leading us in God's Word. It's always a joy to be in churches where by the time the preacher gets up there, you've already heard the gospel in multiple different ways. (laughs) Uh, And uh, you probably don't realize what a privilege it is to be a part of a church where the gospel is so central and it's not only preached, but it's sung, lived out in a day-to-day basis. So great to be back. Great to see you again. My wife brings her greetings and she would normally be down here, but I actually rode my motorcycle down because Derek and I had a little prayer uh, vigil yesterday where we <laughs> rode all over south of here. And uh, so, but it was all very spiritual. Uh, and uh, so, and I am spiritual enough to even come down a day earlier than that to play golf with Tim. So, That's here's the reality. You're, you're looking at a very carnal pastor here who just <laughs> loves his fun. So, today, um, I was, ho- I hope this goes well. <laughs> I, I was kind of excited. I did, by the way, bring my notes this time. So you'll be glad to know that there's, there's hope for today, at least. Um, I was actually excited when uh, Derek called because I had had this message brewing in my heart and um, he called and um, it was uh, just prior to that that I had had some things in our past come up and was pondering them again and I've been reading through the book of Leviticus. So I'm going to preach on the book of Leviticus today. <laughs> so now you know why I say I hope this goes well. <laughs> um, but I'm going to start with a passage of Scripture to explain, and you, I think you'll catch this all as I go here, but um, let me start. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, I'll be reading out of the ESV, so follow along as I read. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those of us God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Pray with me. Lord, I ask that you would use this time in whatever small way you can to equip people, draw their minds to you, help them understand something in a deeper way, that will be helpful to them, not just this morning, but tomorrow and Wednesday and Friday at work, at school, at home, raising the kids, all of the things that we do. Lord, let these profound truths alter and change our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name. So I'm not going to be preaching on this passage. I think you'll understand why I read this passage as we go. This is this is a little bit unusual, so I'm giving you this passage, not preaching on it. Uh, there's, there's something that's connected with what I want to say. It's going to be not quite an expositional message, but we're going to go through the book of Leviticus. Now, I know that there's a deep joy and thrill rising in your heart right now when you think, oh, the book of Leviticus. That's When I think of the Old Testament, that's where I want to go, Leviticus, you know, and uh, I understand. The reality is... You're reading through your Bible, you're trying to diligently, and you get to the book of Leviticus, and you just go, really? Lord, do I need to read all of this? And, and, and you dutifully read it, and so I'm sure you've, most of you, some of you, have read the book of Leviticus, and so you get that. But 
there's a message here, and I'm just going to take a, like a 35,000-foot flyover, so this is not going to be expositional in one sense. But something happened to me a number of years ago, probably 10, 12 years ago now, and maybe even more than that, but I remember somebody in the church coming and making an observation to me and to us as a pastoral team. And that observation was, you're emphasizing sin too much. And that was a little bit jarring. It's just like, hmm, okay, now these are people that have been in the church a long time. So they've heard a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching. Uh, we, we preach Christ crucified, and there's a reason Christ was crucified, and you'd think that people would get that. And so I was a little bit taken aback. We're preaching sin too much. And then it actually progressed to where people were coming to us and saying, could you tone it down on the cross? Because the cross just kind of reminds people of sin. And people are, are just losing their sense of self-worth. And it was, I was like, huh, this is very interesting. And I, I'm not even sure what to do with this. Uh, other than basically try to evaluate, Lord, where, where is this coming from? Have we, have we missed it somehow? Have we, I mean, I'm, my initial response was, well, I think we, we preach grace far more than we preach sin. I mean, we're, we're all about grace, sovereign grace. We're, that's what we're all about. And, and yet something wasn't connecting in people's minds and in their hearts. And this reality, as I was reading yet again the book of Leviticus, I've been growing with a love for this book because it's revealing something to me, revealing something hard to us. From the beginning, and one of these things we need to understand is that from the beginning, God has used bloody, brutal sacrifices to cover and atone for sin. From the animal skins for Adam and Eve to the lamb that replaced Isaac when Abraham was to sacrifice him, to the sacrificial system, the law, and the priests, and ultimately coming to Christ, God uses bloody, brutal, catastrophic sacrifices to atone for sin. And that's what led me to this book, and I want to talk about three things out of this book that I hope will be helpful for you today. Number one, Number one is the holiness of God. Number two, the pervasiveness of sin. And number three, the need for sacrifice. The holiness of God, the pervasiveness of sin, and the need for sacrifice. And if I could sum up what I'm going to say today in a single sentence, it would be this. The violent and catastrophic consequences of sin against a holy God require a bloody violent and catastrophic response, and that's the cross. So let's look at this real quickly. We're going to look at the holiness of God first. When we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking, keep in mind, we're talking a flyby over Leviticus. So when you read the book of Leviticus, one of the things that is foremost of the, in the entire book is holiness. God is holy. So we wanted to ask these two questions. Who is God in the light of his holiness? And number two, what does that mean for us? Who is God? Well, that's what God is revealing. Leviticus is part of Scripture's self-revelation. So think of Scripture as self-revelation, God revealing himself to us. The only way we're going to know who God is and how he operates is for him to reveal himself to us. So Leviticus is in a process here. It's coming after Adam and Eve have fallen, the corruption of mankind. God initiates a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. Israel is ultimately delivered by God's power from Egypt and given the Passover, a picture, sacrifice, blood on the doorposts. God declares Israel his people, his treasured possession, his royal priesthood, his chosen people in Exodus chapter 19. Then they receive, as you would know, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. They're given the plans for the tabernacle in Exodus 35 through, 20, uh, 35 through 40. And now they're here camped at Mount Sinai. The temple's been built. The temple's 
I mean, the tabernacle has been erected. They're, the tabernacle is situated right in the middle of God's people, and the tabernacle represents God's presence right in the middle of his people. No avoiding it. God's presence is there. Now, it'll be interesting to note, Leviticus is a narrative. It's written in a narrative form. It's God speaking. Almost in every chapter of Leviticus, the words, the Lord spoke to Moses. So what's happening in Leviticus is God is speaking to his people. He is constantly talking to them, and he's revealing who he is and his presence there. And right there in the middle of the people is the presence of God, and he reveals himself as holy. He is a holy God. And basically what Leviticus is, is when we have this holy God, and he, we're going to reveal, see more about the holiness of God. When God is holy, then how do you relate to a holy God? Well, what does the word holy mean? First of all, just a definition quick. You're a well-taught people, so you've heard this before. But the word holiness doesn't necessarily mean purity, uh, sinlessness. Those could be a part of holiness. But what holiness means at its root is separate, completely other. So when we talk about God's holiness, what we're talking about is God is completely separate different and other than this people. And he is in Leviticus speaking to Moses and saying, okay, I get it. I'm holy. You're not holy, but I'm calling you to be holy. And here's how you do that. I'm telling you in this book, I'm holy. And here's how you are to be holy. He demands it. And the reality of his holiness, his nature demands that you only approach him in the way he wants to be approached. You can't approach him any other way. He is holy. The underlying nature of sin is rebellion. So you can think of sin in a lot of ways. And if I say the word sin, then you, you could think of all the ways you sin. And that's, that's true. We do in a lot of different ways. But its underlying nature is rebellion. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. It wasn't that they went out and got angry with each other and that was their sin. No, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be in control. So from the beginning, mankind's sin is defined as not wanting to do things God's way. Okay, that's the reality of what sin is. I don't want to do what God says. I don't want to do it his way. I want to do it my way. He's got to be approached in a certain way, and that's because his holiness. He's holy, and so he tells them, I can only be approached like this. Now, this is best evidenced by chapter 10 when we see this story of Nadab and Abihu. So if you go to chapter 10 and you read in there, you'll see that there's these two priests. They are the sons of Aaron. Aaron's the high priest, part of the Levitical tribe that is the priestly tribe, the serving tribe that serves around the tabernacle. And his sons, Nadab and Abihu, have been given very specific instructions. I mean, God has come, and again, we can't take the time to read all this, but God has come and he said very specifically, this is how you bring sacrifices, this is how you bring offerings, this is how you come into the temple, and be careful, because if you don't do it like that, you're going to die. Okay? That's pretty clear. That's very similar to what God said to Adam and Eve. Oh, love the garden. Enjoy the garden. Don't touch that tree. Touch it, you'll die. Now, here's the reality the, that we didn't all die at that moment. You know why? Because the grace of God has been real from the very beginning. He didn't kill us. We should have, but he didn't. So everything from Adam and Eve on is pure mercy. It's the grace of God. So here we have Nadab and Abihu. And for whatever reason, it do, the, if you read the passage, it doesn't indicate there was a sinful intent or motive, although there certainly probably was. What they did is they just brought in what the Bible calls strange fire. The, the, the word actually means unauthorized fire. 
So what the priests were to do is they filled these censer holders with coals and they put uh, incense on them and they would bring them into the temple and into the little, there's a little altar right there at the Holy of Holies. And they're to bring that in. And they just opted to do it different. And they just brought a unauthorized, what the Bible calls unauthorized fire. And immediately fire comes out of the Holy of Holies and consumes them on the spot. I mean, they're burnt to a crisp. They're dead. It's history. Why? You may look at that and say, whoa, wait a minute. That, that doesn't feel very fair. I mean, they, I mean, they're just human after all. They're just bringing in, well, God's saying something. He's communicating something to his people. I'm holy. If you want to come in my presence, you must do it exactly as I tell you to do. And so this is, this is the culture under which they lived. They had to be very careful what they did and how they did it. See, left to ourselves, though, like in Nadab and Abihu, we're not so much thinking that we want to do it exactly that way. We, we'd rather do it this way, or maybe just add a little extra to what God says, and I want to do this this way, and you know what that's called in the, in the Bible? Idolatry. Basically saying, we want a God that we like. We want a God that, that we feel comfortable around. We don't really necessarily want this holy God that like you're thinking, whoa, you get close to him, and it's history, dude. At that point, you're toast. They want to have a God of their own making. So now, now we go. So this is the reality in Leviticus. It's all talking about sacrifice now, ritual blessing, the holy days, the priesthood, the tabernacle, all of it about how you can come into God's presence. But what are the implications for us? So now we get a very, very brief picture of who God is. Now what about us? What about us as the people who are seeking to worship God. Well, the essence of Leviticus can be seen, at least this is just me. Uh, I didn't check a commentary on this one. But if, when I'm reading Leviticus, I go through it. And chapter 19 is kind of like the apex point. Because in chapter 19, God speaks to the people. And he says in verse 2, You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You must be holy, for I am holy. This phrase is used five times in the book of Leviticus. Most, more than any book of the Bible. Uh, be holy, for I am holy. The word holy itself is used 80 times in this book. Far and away, the most of any book in the Bible. This book is all about holiness and how the Israelites because God is holy, how they can come in to his presence. And chapter 19 is sort of that chapter where he is going through all of the different things, how you live. So how does that look in day-to-day -day life? And chapter 19 is basically, he's, he's rehearsing. This is how it looks in everyday life. And so he says, he uses the phrase, I am the Lord, 16 times in this one chapter alone. Over 90 times in the whole book. Once again, far and away beyond any other book. And he will go through all kinds of little detailed things. Like he, he'll do strange things. And this is what makes the book kind of tedious is because he'll say, don't reap to the corners of your field. Leave some for the poor. I am the Lord. <laughs> and then he'll go on and he'll go through all a whole bunch of little detail-oriented things like that. Don't oppress the uh, oppress or rob. I am the Lord. Don't do just injustice or slander. I am the Lord. Don't bear a grudge. I am the Lord. And it just goes on and on. And it's all focused on I am the Lord. So therefore, live your life like this. Lots of right rules. All the stuff you think of when you think of Leviticus. Rules and things and way you're supposed to live. And how we're to live is dictated by who God is. That's the implication for us. So what's required of a perfect holy God is perfection. And that's sometimes what gets us about Leviticus. Seriously? You read that and you think, that's, that's what this Bible is all about? 
holy God and somehow we're going to do this? Well, we get to the second point, which is the problem, and that's the pervasiveness of sin. The pervasiveness of sin. In, and that's what affects you when you read the book of Leviticus. You just go through it and you're seeing all these little detailed things that God describes as sin. You see a bunch of things that require sacrifices. In some cases, they're just normal bodily functions. And you have to sacrifice. It's just like, wow, really? He talks about diseases and he talks about mold in your house. Imagine that, being held accountable because there was mold in your house. Wrong types of animals, unclean animals, dirty pots and jars having been made unclean, and how you're supposed to deal with little detail stuff like that, touching dead things, burying a relative. In, the, in Leviticus, caused you to be unclean, and you had to, you had to sacrifice so many other things we see in the book. And in, in a sense, what he's saying is, it's just being human. Being human is basically unclean before a pure and holy God. And what, it's just like, well, what do you do with that? See, again, I realize why people don't like the book of Leviticus, because you go through it and you think, holy mackerel, how, how can anybody do anything like that or constantly do it. In many ways, it's dealing with the doctrine of what the Reformation called total depravity. Now, that's another one of those things people don't like. They, I've had people come and say, we don't, we don't agree with that doctrine, total depravity. Well, R.C. Sproul was very helpful with this. R.C. Sproul is a well-known theologian. He's passed on to be with the Lord now. But he called it radical depravity. Because total depravity, people thought, you're just like Hitler. You're just totally bad. But none of us are as bad as we could be, right? We're looking at ourselves thinking, well, I'm not that. I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not whatever it is. And, uh, and yet, total depravity. So, but what radical depravity means is that every, not as bad as you could be, but every part of you is tainted by sin. There's no part of us that has not been affected by sin. You know, you're a nice looking group of people. You don't look like sinners. When I'm standing up here, I'm not thinking, oh my God, this, the vibe in this place, it's like, holy mackerel. No, it's, no, you look like very nice people. You're not like depraved in that sense of the word. But the, what the Bible teaches is that every part of you, whether you like it or not, has been affected by sin. At its core, sin is pride manifested in rebellion. That's a theme in Leviticus. They rebelled from the beginning. Adam and Eve rebelled against the holy God. They didn't like his way of doing things. They didn't like what he said. The plan just didn't suit them. And this is true of the people of Israel. All the way through from being delivered out of Egypt, they get to the Red Sea I mean, even before they get to the Red Sea, they're complaining to Moses because the, the, the ten plagues that he brings on Egypt have a certain effect on them. And they're like, what are you doing to us? You're just ruining our lives. And then they get to the Red Sea, and God's already done these amazing miracles, but it's all unbelief. Oh, now here we are, we're going to die in the desert. And God opens the sea, and they get through. And three days later, they're like, oh, we're thirsty. We don't have water. And it's just on and on and on. They don't like manna. God gives them supernatural bread. It's like, we're sick of this manna. It was better in Egypt. Can you imagine that? <laughs> if you go back to Exodus and read what was going on in Egypt, and these people are saying, it was better back there. We had leeks and onions and fresh fish. and They make it sound like heaven. And yet they were oppressed in slavery. So this is the reality of what they were going through. And it all ends up doing what? Worshiping a golden calf at the foot of the mountain when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. It's like, seriously? Worshiping? What, what were they doing? They were saying to God, we don't like how you are. We'd rather have this as a God. Now, 
Again, I know this is going through your mind, but bear in mind, they have watched the sea open. They have watched water come out of the rock. They have watched hailstones kill everything in sight and didn't land on their houses. They have seen it all, and yet they want a God that they can make with their own hands and say, this is what we want. See, this is the epitome of the book of Leviticus. We don't like it your way. We want it our way. And we will therefore make a God. Now, you, you and I are both the same, I'm sure. We sit there and say, I would never do that. <laughs> Reality check, we do it almost every day. You know, I just want to do things my way. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. It's like, that's the human nature. I want to do it my way. Can I just, can I just do it my way just once, well, that's what Leviticus is all about. You're, when you do that, you're saying, I want a God that I like. I want a God that suits me or makes me feel good. And as soon as it crosses my sensibilities, listen, I've talked to some unbelievers who were very religious, wonderful people. And yet, when you, you can take this religious stuff to a certain point, but at a certain point, it becomes... No, you just crossed my line of sensibility. I don't want that. And they're left struggling. They're left with stumbling block over the cross, over the truth of God's word. Ed, sin in the, sli in, in the slightest is an act of divinence against God's cosmic authority. But here's the reality though. And this is in a sense, what Leviticus is all about. The goal is not to be sinless. Okay, what God is doing here, and you'll understand this in a second, what God's doing here is not saying live a sinless life. He's saying when you sin, and that's obvious, you will. The word unintentional sin is used numerous times throughout this book. When you sin, you just need to deal with it the way I tell you. Do it my way. The goal is not to be sinless. The goal is to come to God in the way he prescribes. We do it our way, we get into trouble. We worship a God of our own choosing. Everything, though, must be done his way, and that's the rub. See, now, in today's culture, there's an aversion to taking responsibility for sin. This is where this was coming from when people... Now, again, there's a lot of backstory to this, to this situation of people coming and complaining about us preaching about sin. But there's a lot of, of, uh, of therapeutic teaching out there today that tells you, no, you don't need to be forgiven of sin. You just need to learn to love yourself. You just need to love to learn to accept yourself. You know, and it's like people hear that and they're like, yeah, but when you talk about sin, that, that makes me not accept myself. And again, what are we talking about? Which way are you going to do it? Which way do you want to attempt to find salvation? You hoping to work that out yourself? Good luck with that. Do you want to consider God's way of doing it? The doctrine of sin is humbling. And humility is the only proper response to it. The doctrine of sin is meant to bring you to the end of yourself. So as we're talking about the problem, the pervasiveness of sin, we don't seek to run away from it. We don't seek to hide from it. We humbly embrace this reality that we have been affected that deeply by sin. The doctrine of sin is meant to bring you to a place where you recognize, I can only do it God's way. There is no way for self-atonement right now in my life. Grace through humility is the pathway. We want to self-justify, pronounce ourselves clean, believe that we can do this all of ourselves, but the ultimate result, result of that is you have just set up a God of your own choosing. And that's what Leviticus is trying, what Moses, God speaking through Moses is trying to do. Don't go there. Do it the way I tell you. Do it this way. Now, illustration. You've, you've probably gone to the, 
um, jeweler before. If you haven't, you'll get to do this probably at some point in your life. <laughs> and you go to the jeweler and you see this, and you're, you're looking for a diamond. And you want this, you want to get a diamond. And you ask him, I, I like that one right there. And what the jeweler will do is he will pull out a big black piece of velvet. He'll lay it out and smooth it out on the counter. He'll bring that diamond out. He'll set it right there in the middle of the black. And, and you just look at it and you go, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's the one. In fact, that's so beautiful. Can you bring out four or five others? And let's look. I just want to enjoy looking at this. Let me ask you this. What, what are you looking at? Are your eyes focused on the black cloth? He pulls it out, sets it on there, and you go, oh, that's great, but that cloth, it just looks so black. No, you don't think that. You think, that just makes that diamond look so beautiful. And so it just glows down there against that cloth. That's the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin, the pervasiveness of our sin, is not something to run from. It's something to humbly come to and say, yeah, I, I see that. But because I see it, I'm not focused on that because there's something else that I'm focused on. God displaying. Now, this is true even in Leviticus. See, I'm not, you don't have to look ahead to Christ yet. You look at Leviticus, it's even God saying, listen, the fact that you're alive and the fact that I'm giving you instructions on how you can live with me, that's pure grace. That's, that's the diamond on this black cloth. But then we come to our final point. The final point is the need for a sacrifice. The cost for sin. So this is the third thing you see throughout the book of Leviticus. You see sacrifice. It's happening constantly. It was a normal part of their lives. They did sacrifices for diseases, for normally bodily functions. Everything required a sacrifice. There was no escaping sacrifice in what was happening. It was normal to need ceremonial cleansing. It was constant. It was ubiquitous. It was always going on. A bloody gruesome sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 says without blood there can be no forgiveness. Hebrews says the same exact thing. Without blood there can be no forgiveness. I mean just imagine for me the tabernacle. Okay so the tabernacle is in the center of the people of God. They are surrounding it. And just imagine the daily stuff that goes on there. Now, I don't mean to gross you out, but I do want you to think about this. They bringing animals. Consider the amount of sin going on among these people. And if they're being obedient, if they're doing it God's way, they are bringing animals from their flock to be sacrificed because they've done some unintentional sin. And they bring this animal, and the animal is then killed, the blood is drained out, the organs are pulled out, there are organs, I mean, laying around everywhere, their animal skins are being burned. They take that blood and they sprinkle it against the altar, the bronze altar out front. And this is going on daily, every day. Can you imagine what this place looks like? I mean, I, I think about the bronze altar and I think... I, I'm not sure how this worked back then, but if you don't clean that thing at least once a week, imagine what that thing must look like after years of splattering blood. God, God's way of saying bloody, gruesome, catastrophic sacrifice is what's going to cover your sin. And it all looks pretty challenging, doesn't it? Constant reminder of God's presence among them. Constant reminder. I mean, on one hand, you think, this is, that, that, that's depressing. Imagine being around that and being constantly reminded of the black cloth of your own sin. The sacrifice God requires in Leviticus as we all know, is only a foreshadowing of the sacrifice to come. In Hebrews, 
chapter 10. We see this very clearly. Again, you could spend all day, you could spend a whole series talking about how this looks. But in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer is quoting David in Psalm chapter 40, and he says, sacrifices and offering you have not desired. This, he's quoting David, King David. Now, we all know already God did require sacrifices. But David's saying, well, here's what I see. It's not really the sacrifices, but he goes on here to say, a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Your law is in my heart. See, David was like a New Testament man. But there's something different here in Hebrews that comes out that's not in David. David didn't say, a body you have prepared for me. This is the Hebrews writer taking David's quote and saying, but in this case, God prepared a body. He doesn't want these sacrifices. This catastrophic view of all these sacrifices and the the blood and the gore, I don't want that. I want to write your word on my heart, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring a man in a human body. We all know this is a reference to Christ. All sacrifice look forward to this one sacrifice that Hebrews would call, and I love this phrase, it's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, the once for all sacrifice. Derek already referred to this a little bit earlier. Once for all sacrifice. God says, literally, what God is saying is, that's my way. Now, what you need to understand is what Paul said about that whole picture that I just painted in Leviticus. Paul said in in Galatians chapter 3, he said, this is a tutor to bring you to Christ. The law and the prophets and all of that was meant to bring you to Christ. It was meant to bring the people of God to the place where they said, we can't do this. Got it. That's right. You cannot do this. I don't care how many sacrifices you bring. You'll never atone for sin. It's covered, but here's the the glory of the whole thing. God says, trust me. I'm bringing a man. I'm preparing a body, and that body is going to be for my own son. A body for sacrifice. Jesus came to the earth. He was displayed on the black cloth of this impure, unclean, sinful world. He lived among the leprous and the diseased. All these people you read about in the book of Leviticus, they, they talk about this the, the lepers in Leviticus where they, they had to live outside the camp and nobody could go near them. And if anybody even came close to them, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, don't come here. This is who Jesus came and ministered to. Not just ministered to, but walked right up to them and touched them and laid his hands on them. A woman with a flow of blood healed instantly Jesus, touching Jesus. Jesus lived among this world, sinful unholy people, touched them, intermingled with them, ministered to them. God himself took it upon himself to come and dwell and walk around the uncleanness of this world and touch the leper, heal the woman, raise dead sons and give them back to their mothers. A body prepared by God, this once for all sacrifice. In one day, God brought the sin, all of the sin. You, you, you think Leviticus is bad? You think about all the sin that God gathered up from the world and placed on his son. This once for all sacrifice. And his anger and wrath against sin and, his rebe- uh, and its rebellion was poured out against his own son on one human being, his Isaac, his Passover lamb. In that moment, he did for all time and eternity what the minute requirements and sacrifices of Leviticus could not permanently accomplish. This one sacrifice, one body, and when it was over, Jesus proclaimed, it's finished. It's completely 
done. The same God whose zeal killed Nadab and Abihu was the one whose fury flamed out against his own son. Because his son, as you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21, sorry, 5.21. He became sin for us who knew no sin. You, you, you talk about mind-boggling. This, this is God's way to actually come and live in the world, proclaim that He loves us so much. This, keep in mind, John 3.16 was spoken by Jesus. For God, my Father, loved you so much that he gave me a body and sent me to earth. Now they didn't even know what was going to happen. They didn't know the cross was out there. This same God whose zeal consumed Nadab and Abihu was the one who flamed in fury against his son. The same God who required countless sacrifices, done exactly the way he said to cover sin, was the God who sent his son to die. This is the extent he was willing to go to to pay for your sin. This is, this is pure grace revealed. See, the minute you try to atone for yourself in any other way, the minute you do that, you have fallen from grace. At the minute you come to that point where you say, man, I just Kind of your response to a message by Derek, I just, I just need to try harder. <laughs> if that's your response, you just missed it. That's not God's way. God's way is very narrow. Jesus said, what did Jesus say? I am, well, there's that phrase again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How many times have you heard this over your Christian career? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God except through me. What is he saying? He's saying, folks, go back to Leviticus. Think about this. God said, do it my way or you die. Now Jesus is saying, I am that way. Do it this way or you die. You will forever be without God and lost in this world. Now that's, that's the gospel. That's pure grace poured out to us. To see God's holiness and then to think that he himself would become a man. I mean, to see God's holiness in Leviticus and to see our sinfulness and to think, what an incredible difference. Now look at God's holiness and think, now God... Still the same God, holy God. But imagine that holy God who he says of himself in Isaiah 63, 5, my own arm will bring salvation. Basically God's saying, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to act and I'm going to save people myself because they'll ne they never can do it themselves. It must be God's way. To see God's holiness and think he himself would become a man and subject himself to the brutal, catastrophic, bloody, violent reality of the cross. How many of you have watched the, the Passion of Christ, the movie that was made? I have never watched it since. Because I, I just don't want to sit there and, and, and watch that. And, I mean, I should. I should love to do that. But my flesh rebels again. There's just something like, I just, I just can't watch it again just to think that God would do that for me. That bloody catastrophic. It must be God's way. It is God's way. And we have to submit to God's way, God's plan. And that's why 1 Corinthians tells us Here's how religious people are going to respond to that. 
religious people that aren't concerned about as much about doing it God's way unless it meets their, it fits with their concept of what it should be. It's a stumbling block. You talk about the cross. No, no big surprise. People are going, I don't like that. I don't, my God, <laughs> my God is a loving father. He would never do that to his son. You just missed it. You just lost it. That's not God's way. This is God's way. The Greeks, the worldly people, people with no concept of Christ, never even read the Bible, don't care, heard about it, maybe read small parts of it, said, opened it up, you know, did that thing and ended up in Leviticus the first time. And, oh my God, this is, I don't want anything to do with that. That people, those people, it's foolishness. It's just laughable. It's just a joke. That's why Jesus' name is used so horribly day in and day out. It's just laughable. To the worldly folks, it's all foolishness. But to us, Paul says, to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and it's the power of God. Will people understand it when you talk to them? Not in their own ability. They will do just like the the people of Israel did in Leviticus. They'll look to find a different way. Self-atone, anything but that. But to us who are being saved, it's the grace of God. It's the power of God. Don't ever let your pride keep you from doing it and seeing it God's way. Don't ever be dragged down or overwhelmed by your sin or the cross. Be amazed at grace. Be amazed at the way he has provided. Don't ever try to minimize sin or its consequences. Be amazed by grace. Embrace the cloth. (laughs) Embrace the cloth. The goal isn't to be sinless. That's not going to happen in this lifetime to anybody. I don't care how holy you are or you think you are. You're never going to reach that in this lifetime. It's not possible. Embrace the cross. Embrace the black cloth and embrace the beautiful beautiful crown jewels that Christ is that God has laid in his son right in the middle of that cloth to demonstrate. Look at that. Is that beautiful or what? And when you see it, When God opens your eyes up to it, as he has for most of you in this room, then you just need to look and gaze and be amazed. So as we close this time, we contrast the holiness of God to the sinfulness of man, and it's awesome to look at, as we see in Leviticus. But you contrast the holiness of God to the sacrifice of Christ, and you're just left breathless at what God has done on our behalf. This explains Paul's phrase in Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. Now hear this. Memorize this. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You feel like you're sitting here today and thinking, I, I, I do believe all this, but I think at times I look at myself and think I've gotten worse. And if that is causing you to think, oh, there's something wrong with you, just that's where you look at the black cloth and say, yeah, there's something wrong with me. I can't do it myself. I need grace. And when you think sin is abounding, say, grace abounds. Say that with me. Grace abounds. Say it again. Grace abounds. What are you going to say? This Thursday, when you did something again for the umpteenth billionth time and you're thinking, Christians don't do this. The Bible says, my Bible says, where sin increased, grace increases more. And so what do you say at that moment? Grace abounds. Yes. Your son or your daughter do something completely off the wall. 
an adult son or daughter, a teenage son or daughter that you know has given their life to Christ and they do something like that and you're tempted to say, what is wrong with you? And you say, you just look at them and say, grace abounds. It's God's grace that abounds. That's the grace. We see it in Leviticus, but now it's been revealed for all time. There's a passage in Hebrews 13, 15, that gives us a great response to this, a final response. It says this in Hebrews 13, through him then let us continually offer up sacrifice. Whoa, he's back to sacrifice now. Through him, Jesus, let us then offer, continually offer up a sacrifice to praise of, to the praise of God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So what is your response in the face of sinfulness? Your own sinfulness, the own blackness. Well, when you're confronted with the blackness of your sin, you focus on the beautiful crown jewel sitting right in the front, and you're left with only one sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice, but Hebrews tells us, oh, there is a sacrifice, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You just say, wow, thank you, God, for giving me away to be forgiven, to be your own child, to be your servant, and to give my life to you and let you write your word on my heart. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we are just eternally grateful for the cross. Lord, we're not afraid to look at the cross and see the bloody, catastrophic results of our sin. We see that it's been your way from the very beginning as you have revealed yourself to us, as you revealed yourself to the people of Israel and they could not keep it. And yet, you spoke of a day when you would prepare a body for your son. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later, rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's amazing to us. Father, I pray that your people here today would be amazed by grace. I pray that your people here today would just look to you and just say grace abounds. Lord, this week when they're struggling with things in their life, may they just look to the crown jewel placed on that cloth and may they say grace abounds all the more. Lord, thank you that you gave us a way, a way to walk through this. And Lord, we want to do it your way. We don't want to self-atone. We want to walk in your truth, your way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.